Welcome to the Get Real About Safety podcast. In our podcast, we discuss the new view of safety, what works and what doesn't work, to break down old paradigms and help you improve safety performance in your organization. Hi, I'm Mike. And I'm Pam, and we appreciate you listening. Please share and subscribe and tell others about this podcast. You can find us on most podcast platforms and also on YouTube. Hi, folks, and welcome back to another episode of Get Real About Safety. Thought we would do something a little bit special today, and that's a case study. Uh, This is primarily for the folks who have been through human performance training, but for the folks that are not familiar with HP or the new view of safety, then this uh, could be pretty uh, educational as well. So what we're going to do today is a case study around the Alec Baldwin shooting incident. Now, before we do that, let me just say this. This is still under investigation. So as a disclaimer, what we talk about today is really based on the information that we currently have. And this is from media reports and uh, police investigation reports that we have so far. Uh, This could completely change uh, in time as we get more information. Now, that being said, I don't like to talk about events before an investigation is through, but this case is so rich in error precursors, error traps, performance mode issues, uh, latent conditions, as well as the active trigger, that it's just a rich case study in human performance. So I think it will help a lot of people that are studying HP or implementing HP uh, to kind of view this case from a systems thinking standpoint. Now, the other thing is that I also realize that some listeners may not be familiar with human performance at all and or the new view of safety as some people call it. So I'll try to explain some of the terminology that we use as we go along just to kind of educate people um, as we talk about this. I also realize that some people will be watching this on YouTube and other people will be listening to this on audio versions only. And for the YouTube folks, we actually have a couple of visuals. And so we'll go through those. But at the same time, I'll try to explain to the folks who are just listening uh, what it is that folks who are watching this on YouTube are looking at, because I think it's really important. So what we're going to do is we're going to go through the timeline. Uh, The first thing I want to do is talk about just the initial report that came out of the press the initial reaction that's all over the news and all over social media. And then we're gonna talk about the timeline of the events as they occurred over time. And then we're gonna take a look at the industry standards, the industry safety standards that the movie industry works under and what parts of that uh, were a problem. And then we're also going to take a look at uh, an analysis. Uh, we have a, an event analysis worksheet that we use with our clients when they're learning to do learning teams and event analysis. All right, here we go. So I hate to read things to folks, but this has got so much detail in it. I'm actually going to read the timeline and the initial report 
And uh, then we're going to talk about the analysis and the conclusions when we kind of get done here. On October 21st, 2021, cinematographer Helena Hutchins was killed and director Joel Souza was wounded when actor Alec Baldwin fired a 45 caliber revolver during a rehearsal on the Rust set, according to the Santa Fe County, New Mexico Sheriff's Office. Investigators said a lead projectile had been removed from the director's shoulder and that it appeared to be a live round. They said there was, quote, some complacency, unquote, around the safety on that set. The actor was told a gun being used as a prop gun was safe before he fired it on the set, resulting in the death of Helena Hutchins and wounding its director. And that's according to the law enforcement officials. Now, when this first came out, the initial reaction is can be expected. And you always hear this on the news media uh, the, the, the reaction, number one, was blank. Number two, the reaction was human error. And you always hear that. I don't care what accident it is. You always hear this human error, operator error, driver error. The thing about error is it teaches us nothing. Human error is not the end of an investigation. It's only the beginning. And in fact, it is a window into the operating system. And when people stop at human error or human behavior or any of the other blame type language, it tells us absolutely nothing. We learn nothing. We have no idea why that person did what they did. It doesn't tell us how to keep that from happening in the future. And frankly, all it is is just a cheesy way to blame the people that are involved. And here's the problem with that. Blame fixes nothing. Blame fixes absolutely nothing. One of the pillars of human performance is that blame fixes nothing. Another pillar is that context drives behavior. Most errors and most behaviors that happen in the workplace emerge from the context of the work itself. So it's really important to understand the context. Here's another really important pillar of human performance, and that's that errors are normal. Errors are nothing unusual whatsoever. Human beings make errors and they will always make errors. You're never gonna get rid of that. You can't train that out of people. You can't punish that out of people and you can't incentivize that out of people. And so the way that you deal with human error is what we call consequence control. In other words, we have to assume that human beings are fallible and they will make mistakes. And so how do we control the consequences of when people make mistakes so that we don't have a bad outcome? It's a completely different way of looking at safety than the old traditional crime and punishment model that most people have been trained around so much. Here's the other thing about this initial reaction. It is absolutely loaded with bias. Bias clouds our understanding of an event. And this one is, is loaded with hindsight bias because we have the luxury of knowing the outcome. It's loaded with counterfactuals. Counterfactuals are the could haves and should haves. Doesn't explain why they did it, just said they could have done it, they should have done it, but it doesn't explain anything about why they actually did what they did. The other thing, and this is, I mean, you saw this all over social media, it was absolutely loaded with political bias. And political bias, um, there's all kinds of motivations for that. 
But again, it just clouds understanding so that we really don't understand what's actually going on. It's just another way to blame. It's loaded with outcome bias. When people think they know the outcome, they stop looking any further at the deeper issues that may have led up to it. And it's also loaded with confirmation bias. Confirmation bias is when people think they know the outcome and they run around looking for information to support their preconceived notion. So this is just absolutely loaded with bias. So let's talk about the timeline that led up to this. And again, I hate to read this, but this is just, there's a lot of detail to this. So in May of 2020, actor Alec Baldwin announced that he would be producing and starring in the film Rust. This is based off a story that he helped create with the film's director, Joel Sousa. On October 4th of 2021, the beginning of Rust production came amidst a potential strike by members of the International Alliance of Theatrical Stage Employees over working conditions and low pay. On October 4th, it was announced that the union members voted 98% in favor of authorizing a strike. Helena Hutchins, who was killed in the event, was a supporter of this union. The absence of a medic during the construction of the film set was an early concern. From the start, production assured crew members that it would cover hotel room expenses. However, at the start of the second week of filming, hotel rooms were no longer provided to the crew members and they were mocked for wanting to avoid a one hour drive from Albuquerque. Several crew members also cited that they were not being paid and began advocating for safer work conditions. A crew member added, we cited everything from lack of payment for three weeks, taking our hotels away despite asking for them in our deals, lack of COVID safety, and on top of that, poor gun safety. Poor onset safety, period, as it was stated. The complaints also mentioned that two prop guns had previously fired a total of three times unintentionally. In fact, Baldwin's stunt double had accidentally fired two blanks when he was told a prop gun was cold, and a young woman had shot herself in the foot with a blank round. However, the production did not launch an investigation into these discharges, and later claimed, quote, they were not made aware of any official complaints concerning weapon or prop safety on the set. On October 21st, seven unionized members of the film's camera crew collected their belongings at approximately 6.30 a.m. Mountain Time in a walkout. Hutchins arrived as the camera crew was leaving and was unaware of the walkout. They were told to leave the set with a producer threatening to call the police and they were replaced by four non-union members. According to a statement given to a local publication, several crew members took a number of prop guns off the set that day, including the firearm involved in the incident, to pass the time shooting at beer cans with live ammunition. After a lunch break, the prop guns had been returned. It's not clear if the firearms were checked again. On October 26, the Santa Fe County District Attorney said these claims were not yet confirmed. Responsible for overseeing all weapons on the set was the production's property key assistant armorer, Hannah Gutierrez-Reed. She was the daughter of longtime industry armorer, Thel Reed. Rust was Reed's second film serving as a lead armorer. 
On her first film, The Old Way, several crew members reported her handling of firearms, including an incident in which she discharged a weapon without warning and caused actor Nicholas Cage to walk off the set. Dave Halls, who was the assistant director, had faced complaints in 2019 about his behavior on two episodes of Into the Dark, in which he disregarded safety protocols and ignored blocked exits and fire lanes. In the same year, he was fired from working on the film Freedom's Path after a firearm discharge unexpectedly on the set, wounding one of the crew members. On October 6th, filming for this movie, Rust began in Bonanza City, New Mexico. So on October 21st, and this is the day of the event, it was the 12th day of a 21-day shoot. The cast and crew were rehearsing a gunfight scene that takes place inside of a church at the Bonanza Creek Ranch. Firearms and ammunition were retrieved from a locked safe, and the armorer placed three guns as props on a cart. Among them were a plastic gun that could not shoot live ammunition, a modified weapon that could not fire any type of ammunition, and an FDP at a Colt 45 revolver. The latter was briefly checked by Reed and selected by Halls, the assistant director, who handed it to Baldwin and announced that it was a cold gun. That is a term used to indicate that it had no live rounds. The B camera operator, Reed Russell, was situated on a camera dolly looking at a monitor with Hutchins and Sousa both nearby. The scene involved Baldwin's character removing a gun from its holster and pointing it toward the camera. The trio behind the monitor were two feet from the muzzle of the firearm, and none of them were wearing any protective gear like noise-canceling headphones or safety goggles. While the trio behind the monitor were repositioning the camera to remove the shadow, Baldwin began explaining to the crew how he planned to draw the firearm. He said, so I guess I'm going to take this out, pull it, and go bang. When he removed it from the holster, Baldwin fired the gun a single time and the projectile flew towards the three behind the monitor, striking Hutchins in the chest and Sousa in the shoulder. The assistant director did not know the live rounds were in a prop gun when he gave it to Mr. Baldwin, according to the affidavit from the sheriff's department, which was part of the search warrant application. The affidavit did not specify what kind of ammunition the gun had been loaded with. The shooting sparked debates about working conditions on film sets. In a speech at a vigil, the union vice president said, quote, I'm afraid we are also gathered with some frustration and a little bit of anger, anger that too often the rush to complete productions and the cutting corners put safety on the back burner. So that's the timeline of the events as they happen. Now, here's just a few other facts. First of all, and of note, this was a low budget film. And I think we really have to focus on that a little bit. Anytime that something is, when budgets are tight or they're, they're, uh, people have to do more with less, that always increases the chance of errors. We mentioned earlier that Halls had been previously fired from a film in 2019. He was removed from the set immediately after a prop gun discharged. Production did not resume filming until he was off site and an incident report was taken and filed at that time. Here's another fact, safety protocols 
standard in the industry, including gun inspections, were not strictly followed on the rust set near Santa Fe. They said at least one of camera operators complained last weekend to a production manager about gun safety on set. Here's another one. Baldwin stunt double accidentally fired two rounds after being told that the gun was cold. That's lingo for a weapon that doesn't have any ammunition, including blanks. Here's another fact. There should have been an investigation into what happened, a crew member said. There were no safety meetings. There was no assurance that it would not happen again. All they wanted to do was rush, rush, rush. A colleague was so alarmed by the prop gun misfires that he sent a text message to the unit production manager. We've now had three accidental discharges. This is super unsafe. And that's according to a copy of a message reviewed by a newspaper called The Times. There's another one. After filming began, the crews were told that instead of being provided with nearby hotel rooms, they would be required to make the 50 mile drive from Albuquerque each day rather than stay overnight at Santa Fe, which was nearby. The Rankle crew members who worried that they might have an accident after spending uh, 12 to 13 hours on the set voiced concerns. The issue of gun safety that had been brought up previously by the camera crew had been brushed off repeatedly by the producers. Here's another one. On October 29th, Reed released a statement saying that the whole production set had become unsafe due to factors like lack of safety meetings and her having to work two different positions, preventing her from focusing full time on her position as an armorer. The statement also said that she fought for training, days to maintain weapons, and proper time to prepare for gunfire, but ultimately was overruled by production and by her department. She also stated that she had no idea where the live rounds came from. Here's another fact. The shooting sparked debates about the use of guns as props on film sets. Shannon Lee, the sister of Brandon Lee, an actor who was killed by a similar accidental shooting of a prop firearm on the film set of The Crow in 1993, called for prop guns to be banned, stating that with all the special effects that are possible and all the technology, there's no reason to have a prop gun or a gun on a set that can fire a projectile of any sort. Similar comments were echoed by others who knew Lee or had worked with him on The Crow. Bill Deal, who was a teacher for Hutchins, also suggested that using special effects instead, calling it archaic that real guns with blanks in them are used in a film. On October 22nd, the rookie showrunner Alex Hawley of ABC announced the show would ban live guns from the set, stating, it's now policy on the rookie that all gunfire on the set will be airsoft guns with CGI muzzle flashes added in post-production. The shooting sparked debates about the use of guns in films and television more generally. In an article for The Conversation, Brad Bushman of Ohio State University and Brad Romer of the University of Pennsylvania argued that the gun industry pays production companies to place its products in their movies. They are rewarded with frequent appearances on screen, which is good for marketing. The more guns there are in the movies, the more likely that a shooting is to occur, however both in the real world and on set. 
an editorial for the Los Angeles Times said the incident raises a bigger issue of the proliferation of guns in shows and movies. Weapons are often part of plot points, but do they need to be? TV and movie cops brandish and fire their weapons often, but in reality, a police officer rarely draws his or her gun outside of a shooting range in the course of an entire career. Sheriff's investigator Mendoza stated that on the scene, they recovered 500 rounds of ammunition on the set, and that included blanks, dummy rounds, and what they suspect were live rounds. When asked about possible target practice happening on the set, Mendoza stated he was aware of those statements, but that was still under investigation. He went on to say that as far as he was concerned, there was at least one live round, and they suspect there were others, but that is still unconfirmed. Quote, we are investigating why there would have been live rounds on the set because there should not have been. Now, in terms of the history of shootings, there have been a, a number of shootings that have happened uh, in this industry. We mentioned earlier that while filming the movie The Crow in 1993, actor Brandon Lee, the son of Bruce Lee, was killed when struck by a bullet from a gun that was supposed to have just blanks but a bullet lodged in a barrel. Even blanks can be deadly if fired at a close range. In 1984, actor John Eric Hexham was playing around with a gun on the set of the cover-up, Golden Opportunity, and died after putting the gun to his head and pulled the trigger. They all contained a charge, a powder that creates the noise and explosive in the visual blast that usually some kind of wire or something explodes out of the weapon when it's fired. So even blanks can kill. OSHA, the U.S. Occupational Safety and Health Administration, initially fined the production $84,000 for violations after acting Brandon Lee's death, but the fine was later reduced to $55,000. In 2005, OSHA fined Greystone Television and Films $650 after a crew member was shot in the thigh, elbow, and hand. It turned out that a balloon-breaking birdshot round uh, were in the same box as the blanks and that were supposed to be used in the rifles. This past Tuesday, firearms expert Stephen Wolf provided insight on how an incident like this could occur. He explained that while the gun was used in the film as a prop, it still was very much a real working firearm and that the term prop gun is a misnomer and has been misused in reports in the incident. He stated the gun that Helena was shot with was not a prop gun. A prop gun is a gun that has either been modified to only accept blanks or has been specifically manufactured to only accept blanks. If bullets came out of this gun, it was not a prop gun. It was a real gun that was being used as a prop in the movie. Wolf stated that in his professional opinion, it was improper for them to have guns on the set that were capable of firing live ammunition. According to a report from another publication, crew members on the film allegedly used the gun for target practice, shooting beer cans with real ammunition to pass the time on the set. This could potentially explain how a real bullet got confused for a fake and remained in the gun. Wolf stated, don't bring guns on the set that you can put bullets into. Do not have live ammo on the set. And most importantly, don't point a gun at somebody that does not pose a threat to you. Ultimately, Wolf feels there's really no reason to use real unmodified 
firearms on the set. According to Wolf, the gun should never have been handed to Baldwin by the assistant director Hall in the first place. Only the armorer or the prop master should have ever handed the weapon to anyone on the set because that person is responsible for knowing the condition of the gun, verifying it for themselves, and then passing both the gun and that knowledge to the next person who should then also open the gun, validate what they've been told before they close the gun and use it on the scene. The procedures by which one can safely handle firearms on the set are well known and well established. But it doesn't matter how many rules you have if you don't have the knowledge and the experience to follow them. In regards to safety standards, safety standards developed by film studios and labor unions are the primary protection for actors and film crews when a scene calls for using prop guns. The industry-wide guidance is clear. Blanks can kill. Treat all firearms as if they are loaded. Despite some industry reforms following previous tragedies, the Federal Workplace Safety Agency, OSHA, is silent on the use of on-set gun safety. And most of the preferred states for film and TV productions take a hands-off approach largely. New Mexico workplace safety officials, OSHA, confirmed that they would be looking into whether the film crew followed industry standards. The agency does not routinely conduct safety inspections of film sets and studios unless they receive complaints. A few days later, Russ Productions made the following statement. Quote, the safety of our cast and crew is the top priority of Russ Productions and everyone associated with the company. Though we were not made aware of any official complaints concerning weapon or prop safety on the set, we will be conducting an internal review of our procedures while production is shut down. We will continue to cooperate with Santa Fe authorities in their investigation and offer mental health services to the cast and crew during this time. Now, the latest thing to come out as of uh, yesterday, November the 4th, the armorer's attorney suggested, quote, there might have been sabotage on the set, unquote. Reed had loaded the weapon with rounds from a box of dummy prop ammunition, they stated. Never in a million years did she think that live rounds could have been in the dummy round box. Who put those in there and why is the central question. She kept guns locked up, including throughout lunch and on the day in question, and she instructed her department to watch the cart containing the guns while she was away on other duties or during the lunch break. She inspected the rounds that she loaded into the firearms that day. She always inspected the rounds. She did again right before handing the firearm to Halls by spinning the cylinder and showing him all of the rounds and then handing him the firearm. No one could have anticipated or thought that someone would introduce live rounds onto this set, unquote. So there are, there's the timeline and there are a lot of the facts that came out of the investigation so far. So now I think it's really important that we take a look at the industry standards. So I'm gonna come up for those on YouTube, I'm gonna do a little bit of a share screen here and let you take a look at that. So keep in mind again, that OSHA, neither state or federal OSHA really regulates um, the use of guns on a movie set. Now they do regulate under general industry standard and under the construction standards, they do regulate uh, some of those standards, uh, especially the construction stuff when they're building sets. So they do have uh, authority over that. 
but uh, they pretty much take a hands-off approach and they rely on what's what you see here is the industry-wide labor management safety committee bulletin. And so what this is, these are guidelines that are intended to give recommendations, special guidelines and conditions for safe handling of firearms utilizing live ammunition. And what I have highlighted here are some of the things that were either avoided, skirted, or just violated uh, by various people at different levels of this organization. So first of all, it says on controlled second units, there may be very rare occasions when live ammunition must be used. And it says in those very special circumstances, live ammunition may be used only if the following criteria and special conditions have been met. So first of all, they talk about that the property master or a designee, which would have been the armorer, uh, would be acting in the interest of the producer. And there are certain duties that they have. So here's one that I got highlighted. That person and the director, producer, and first assistant and special effects technicians have to jointly determine a situation exists in which there's no other practical alternative but to use live ammunition. Looks like there were alternatives to me. Live ammunition should not be used under circumstances where a desired special effect can be achieved by using conventional special effects techniques by a qualified and licensed special effects technician or by a computer generated means or CGI. And there's a number of these others listed down here, but I'm just gonna kind of hit the ones that seem to be problematic. Here's one. Before any use of a firearm and the loading of live ammunition in a rehearsal and or for on-camera sequences, all persons involved shall be thoroughly briefed in an on-site safety meeting where firearms will be used. We already heard from the facts that safety meetings were not happening. It says the safety meetings shall include an on-site walkthrough and a dry run, an understanding of the intended action, possible deviations, plans to abort, emergency procedures, and chain of command should be made clear. Here's another one. The firearms will be kept in the control only of the property master or designee, which would be the armor. And such firearms will not be used as props. On days where the production will be utilizing firearms for live ammunition, firing and replicas and or prop firearms, the property master or designee shall identify the live ammunition firearms by color or some other easily recognizable means of identification. These types of firearms shall never be kept together or stored together. That seems a little problematic, huh? Here's another one. Live ammunition will not be kept on the set for any longer than is necessary to complete the scene in which it's being used. Live ammunition shall be secured in a locked box and clearly marked in a manner to differentiate it from blank ammunition. Here's another. All safety procedures and requirements shall be strictly followed. There shall be no deviation of the intended sequence without the permission of the range or proper, property master. Here's another. Immediately prior to the firearm discharge, a rehearsal shall be held to ensure that all who will be present know the assigned location, 
the safety zones that have been identified and to assure that no one is down in the range area. Upon completion of the rehearsal, a formal announcement shall be made to those present that live ammunition will be fired. Particular attention shall be paid to the line of fire. Ensure that the area is clear of all personnel and be aware of possible ricochet hazards and or the ejection of hot shell casings. There are some general safe use handling of firearms laid out in here, and here's a few that I have highlighted. One is never point a firearm at anyone, including yourself. Never place your finger on the trigger until you're ready to shoot. Keep your fingers alongside the firearm and off the trigger. Know where and what your intended target is. Do not engage in horseplay with firearms. Never lay down a firearm or leave it unattended. Hmm. Once the firearm has been loaded with the live ammunition, the firearm is to be considered hot. The jamming or malfunctions of firearms must be reported immediately to the attention of the property master or their designee. Malfunctioning firearms should be taken out of service and properly repaired by a person qualified to work on those firearms. Sounds a little problematic there. Ensuring that all firearms, which will be used on a production, are given to and are in the possession of the property master or designee. Here's another one. Ensure that a sufficient amount of time has been allotted for training and rehearsal. Firearms are not to be loaded until just before they're used in a scene. Ensuring that any actor who is required to stand near the line of fire be allowed to witness the loading of the firearms. Couple more here. The possession of all firearms except during the actual filming or rehearsal Afterward, the property master will immediately unload the live ammunition from the farm. And lastly, ensuring that all firearms and live ammunition are accounted for before any personnel is allowed to leave the area. So if you look at those issues that are drawn out by the industry itself, those are the safety standards lined out by the industry itself. And I think we heard a lot of issues there. Now, to kind of take this a little bit further, I'm going to bring up another thing here. In our practice with companies that are implementing human performance and throughout the training sessions and workshop activities, after they have conducted learning teams, we uh, have them to utilize what we call a, an event incident failure analysis. And we have a worksheet that they use. This is kind of a guide. Ultimately, over time, they don't have to use this, but this kind of is a guide for picking out things like error precursors and error traps and latent conditions. And I'm going to kind of explain what these are as we go along. So I want to draw your attention to this section here called error precursors. Now, error precursors are things that increase the chance of an error. And they, what they do is they tend to exceed human limitations and they immensely increase the chance of people making mistakes. And these fall into four different categories. They fall into the categories of task demands, individual capabilities, work environment, and human nature. So some of the ones that I've got highlighted here under task demands, one, time pressure certainly was an issue. This was a low budget film. They were already behind schedule. And so there was a huge amount of pressure to rush. Rushing always increases the chance of errors. 
there was high workload. There were simultaneous tasks, and particularly for the armor, she was having to do two different tasks. Her only task should have been being an armor. But then again, as stated previously, sometimes when there are budget crunches uh, and there's a lot of pressure to produce, people are assigned multiple duties. Multitasking, or maybe a better term for that would be task switching, always increases the chance of errors. There were irreversible actions in terms of the fact that the gun had a live round in it. And so by shooting that gun, I mean, it was irreversible. There were unclear goals, unclear roles and responsibilities. And obviously safety meetings were not being held. Uh, there was excess time on task, they were behind because of the uh, having to get another crew in when the uh, union members left uh, that morning of the, uh, the shooting. Under individual capabilities, there were imprecise communications. Alec Baldwin was told that it was a cold gun. There was a can-do attitude on the part of just about everybody on the set. There was unawareness of critical parameters. Again, this kind of goes back to the imprecise communications, but there was an unawareness on the part of Alec Baldwin and likely even the armorer that there was a live round in the gun. Now, under illness and fatigue, fatigue was certainly an issue. These folks were working 12 and 14 hour shifts. And then with the additional problem of not having nearby hotel rooms, that added an additional hour each way to and from work. And so essentially what they were doing is working uh, 14 to 16 hour shifts. We know in human performance, that fatigue is a major error precursor. And fatigue not only drives errors and increases the chance of errors, but it also drives shortcuts as well. People by necessity will take shortcuts as a matter of survival when they are overly fatigued. Fatigue is a major problem. Under the work environment, there were changes or departures from routine. Uh, there were certainly unexpected equipment conditions. And there absolutely was a production over safety emphasis. Under human nature, there certainly was stress. There were assumptions made about the condition of the gun. Uh, there was complacency uh, and overconfidence. In fact, even the Sheriff's Department uh, initially stated that there was complacency on the set in regards to safety. Mode awareness, that has a little bit to do with uh, uh, not being aware that the gun had a live round in it, and also just habits and patterns. What had happened is that over time, a lot of unsafe habits, a lot of unsafe patterns had become sort of normalized uh, within the culture on that set. Just looking a little bit further at some of the other things, uh, I want to draw your attention to error traps. Now, error traps are things that almost guarantee that an error will occur. And here's what the error traps were. You had a gun that would fire live rounds. And there was both live and blank ammo on site at the same time. That's an error trap. Sorry, that almost guarantees that somebody is gonna mess up at some point in time. Now, what's really important is, is to understand what latent conditions and what active triggers were in place. So let me explain those. An active trigger 
in a safety or an accident type event is typically an unsafe act or an unsafe condition. Those do not cause the event. They trigger the event to occur, and trigger is kind of a weird term considering we're talking about a gun here, but it triggers the event to occur, but it does not cause the event to occur. Latent conditions are underlying organizational weaknesses, and they give rise to error precursors and error traps. And here's the thing about latent conditions and active triggers. There are always many more latent conditions than there are active triggers. In fact, in training, we typically take a number of scenarios and we have people to separate out uh, all the things that they, they list out all the things that led up to an event and then separate out, is this an active trigger or a latent condition? And here's what I'll tell you. In most cases, you have many, many, many more latent conditions to active triggers. Uh, in fact, the ratio of latent conditions to active triggers is typically massive, 20 to 1, 30 to 1, 50 to 1, sometimes 200 to 1. And that ratio tells us everything. What that ratio tells us, that in most cases, workers do not cause accidents. What they do is they trigger the instability in the safety system that is caused from those latent conditions, which create gaps in our defenses. So I've got a number of them checked off here. So the latent conditions that existed was that there was assumption that the gun was cold. There certainly was a lax safety culture. There clearly was a lack of supervisor, producer, and management accountability. And that probably was from the corporate level. I mean, just how much oversight was being provided on that scene in terms of safety. There was a lack of planning. Uh, you had loaded guns that were left unsecured on the table. They did not assure that live ammo was accounted for. There was labor unrest and labor disputes over safety concerns and other issues. There was no safety director on site. There was no medical on site. So again, you had a little bit of a lack of oversight. The armor and the assistant director had a history of being removed from films previously. Another latent condition is that it was a low budget film. And again, low budgets, doing more with less always drives errors. And it also drives shortcuts. There was a history of previous shootings within the film industry. There was no regulatory oversight. It was just purely reliance on uh, industry standards. Those industry standards themselves, by and large, were not being followed. The gun industry actually pays the movie industry to use live guns because it is a marketing opportunity for the gun industry. That's a big point to kind of keep in mind. There had been near misses on the set. There had been no investigation of near misses. There were no safety meetings. Uh, Non-union employees were brought in to replace the other folks, and that created a huge delay. And so the filming overall was behind schedule, then it became further behind schedule as a result of that. The armor was multitasking or task switching. Both live and blank rounds were on the set at the same time. Guns potentially used on breaks for target shooting. Now that's still not yet confirmed, but that's a big one uh, if that's the case. The gun used was not a prop gun. Remember a prop gun is incapable of firing live rounds. This one fired live rounds, so it was not a prop gun. 
The gun was handed to Baldwin by an assistant director, not by the armor. So again, not following protocol. Guns and ammo were left unattended for two hours during a lunch period, which of course, again, is in violation of the industry standards. And these are all latent conditions. And the active trigger was the fact that the gun was pointed and the trigger was pulled. So I calculated, and there's probably gonna be a whole lot more of these, but I calculated the ratio of latent conditions to active triggers is about 25 to one. About 25 latent conditions to that one active trigger of pointing the gun. So here's what that kind of tells us. This active trigger didn't cause the event. It triggered the event to occur, but had all of these other things been in place, and there had not been gaps in these defenses, this one could not have happened. You know, ultimately in human performance, you have to answer the question is how did the decisions and the actions of the persons involved make sense to them given the circumstances? I would submit that due to a lax safety culture, it became routine to skirt safety requirements. I would also submit that organizational drift was a huge issue. Organizational drift is the slow incremental deviation of rules, policies, practices, and procedures. And that certainly was in play here, it seems. And another was reason that it made sense to Alec Baldwin is that he was told that the gun was cold. So in terms of defenses and recommended defenses, you know, here's a recommended new defense. One of the best ways to prevent errors is called pokeyo. Poke yoke is a Japanese term that means error proofing or mistake proofing. So the poke yoke in this case would be making sure that there are no live guns and live ammo on the set because we know that that's not necessary to accomplish the effects that are needed today with today's technology. It's just that the film industry has not learned that lesson yet. So there you have it. So let's just kind of talk about in conclusion. You know, I would submit that this was a system induced or a system enabled error. Was there some culpability on the part of those involved? Probably, there probably to some degree was, but this was much more heavily weighted in system issues. Simply blaming those involved while ignoring all of the system issues that led up to this, it leaves all of that stuff in place. And ultimately this will happen again, unless those issues are dealt with. I would submit that what really caused this event was a cascading series of management failures and safety culture failures that culminated into what we call single point failure. Single point failure is where there is no defense. We know that redundant defenses have to be in place, but standards were being violated, training was inadequate, PPE was inadequate, uh, the, the, the culture was inadequate. There were just, and, and the only reliance, the only defense was the behavior of people. And it, that's the last line of defense. If the only defense is the behavior of people, we are going to fail every time. So there you have it. And again, I do want to preface this again with the fact that this may completely change, but I just feel like that this was a good study in systems thinking in the new view of human performance, just based on the limited information that we have today. 
It'll be interesting to see how this develops over time. Now, all of this could be kind of contorted with legal issues because you know how the legal system is. There's going to be all kinds of defenses that come up that may actually contort the real facts. But take this as a case study. Uh, take this as a way to kind of learn systems thinking and how those drive things. Hope you found this helpful and look forward to seeing everybody in the future. Take care, folks. Keep them safe out there. Thank <music> you.